But Lord, we do lift up this, uh, this fellow, Jeff. We don't know him, but he's been instrumental in Mark's life, and we just pray a special blessing on him as he, as he fights this, this COVID uh, virus. Lord, we, we, we know that it hasn't gone away, and we know, Father, that uh, it gets a little more infectious every time, and we pray, Father, that you would protect Jeff and his wife, Lauren, from this virus and Lord we pray that same prayer for us as well Lord that you would watch over our church our families our extended families and keep them safe from this virus we pray come now Lord we ask that you join me and us in the study of first John as we close out this book I pray father your blessing and that your words would be spoken not mine in Jesus name amen amen so uh this I went over briefly the last time. I'm hoping to take a little more time this time. So uh, we, we have this passage in, in chapter 5 that uh, talks about things we know. There are actually seven things listed here that we know. And, uh, and I, I just wanted to take a little more time with it as we close out this book and... Uh, just emphasize what John has been trying to show us. And in order to do that, the first thing I did is I looked up what are normal sources of knowledge. And uh, this, is, this is obviously from Google. Uh, we get our knowledge from four sources according to, uh, actually three or four sources that I looked up. Uh, one of those sources is we get our knowledge from a, an authority figure over us, somebody we respect somebody we really think knows what they're talking about, somebody we trust, they tell us something and we believe it. Uh, we also get our knowledge from intuition, which really I should have shifted that around and put this last because it's intuitive knowledge that John is talking about here when he talks about these seven things that we know. Uh, he will bring up other forms of knowledge, and I'll share that in just a minute. In fact, you'll see that. But primarily the word that is used here is an intuitive knowledge. It's a knowledge that we have internally. Uh, there's also a source of knowledge from observation or experimentation, scientific knowledge, if you will. But it's not just that. You can observe nature and learn all kinds of things. You can just pay attention to what's going around you and learn things that are not scientific, but still you learn them that way. Uh, things we discover by experience or by testing. And finally, there's an educated guess. And I don't like that word guess, but it's an educated assumption. Uh, Well-informed estimate based on experience or theoretical knowledge. And you find that illustrated very well here in this passage of Scripture. Uh, for the wrath of God, this is in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness against all unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Now watch how different types of knowledge, uh, knowings, uh, play through this thing. Because that which may be known of God is manifest, that's intuition, they should, it's in his heart, and it's manifested in them, in, inside of them. For God hath showed it unto them, that's the authority type of knowledge. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that's observation even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, an educated guest based on all the things they've observed, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves wise 
they became fools. It's interesting to see how Paul, well, the Holy Spirit really wove all those four types of knowledge into man's rejection of God, even though he knows God by authority, he knows God by intuition, he knows God by scientific experimentation, and he knows God by an educated guess of putting all those things together. Even so, they reject God in, in their hearts and in their minds. And uh, it's, it's an interesting passage that plays into what I'm saying. Now, what John is saying is, while others may have heard of God, see, and others may have reasoned that there must be a God, we, on the other hand, know God with an unshakable inner assurance. That's what you're looking for in your heart, an unshakable inner assurance. People used to say when I was a new Christian, they used to say, I know that I know. And that, that's sort of a stupid way to say it, but that's the way they talk down south where I went to church. I know that I know that I'm saved. I know that I know that I'm saved. And what they're saying is I know deep in my heart. I know with full assurance that I am a believer. And that's where you want to be. Now, what John is saying in this passage is we know that we have eternal life. I've written these things, John writes, unto you that believe. See, I'm writing to you who already believe. In the name of the Son of God, that you may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of His Son. Now, you know, he does a number of things in this book, and I went back through the chapters of First uh, John, and he does a number of he makes a number of statements here that I'm not going to put up on the on the screen behind me, but I'm just going to read them. In chapter one and verse seven, he says, John says, "We discovered a new life in Christ. We were born again." That new life has resulted in our walking in the light of God. The power of sin is broken in our lives. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, We found that he will forgive our sins if we go to him and confess them. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through confession, we have found relief from our guilt of our sinfulness. In chapter 2 and verse 3, he said, We hear his voice. And because we hear his voice, we keep his commandments. He speaks to us and we listen. That's what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice and they listen to me. You know, verse 4, he said, "Our li this is back in chapter 2 and verse 4 of 1 John. Our lives have begun to reflect the character of Jesus. What we should be seeing inside of us is the change of our character from who we were when we were first saved to someone who is more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10 of chapter 2, he said, We found to our surprise that we love other believers, relatively new to us. This love was never a part of who we were before Christ. In verse 20, he says, chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, We've discovered that the Holy Spirit is teaching us and in us, and we sense his presence. In chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, As we abide in Jesus, we discover a new power to refuse the control of sin in our lives. In verse 22 of chapter 3, he says, we begin to see that our prayers are being answered. And in verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us operating in, in our lives is our proof, it's our guarantee that we are born again. So this is the whole book put together in this sentence. These things have I written unto you, you see, in the name of the Son of God, that you... Believe, I'm sorry, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That, now that's hina in the Greek, it's a purpose clause. In order that you may know, uh, know, that's a word intuitively know, that you have internal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. 
Do you know that you know? Do you know deep in your heart that you're saved? That's the point of this book. And if you haven't got to that point yet, go back through this book and look at the evidences of salvation in your own life. I love this illustration when Western settlers were traveling across this country back in the early days, 200 years ago. They would find themselves in vast, uh, vast uh, areas of high grass, and they would cross the, the flatlands, they called it. And sometimes lightning would start a brush fire, and they could see it burning way off in the distance. Now, they could be burned alive in that fast-moving, wind-driven brush fire that would burn across the Great Plains of the United States. But what they would do is they would uh, huddle up in a circle, and they would start a fire themselves. And they would burn all the grass around them in an outer circle, to, and then they would stand in the center, and they would let that fire burn out to meet the oncoming, the onrushing fire so that when they hunkered down in their location, there was no fuel left for that grass to burn. And that's how they survived these raging brush fires as they were crossing our country. Now, you know, that's really what we've done at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, sin was judged in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God poured out all His judgment, the fire of all His judgment, on the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we go to that cross and we cling to that cross, the judgment of God on sin has already burned that area out and we're safe in Jesus Christ. There is, the John, uh, sorry, Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. See, it isn't that we have salvation, it's that we have Christ and Christ is salvation. We are in Christ and that's the basis of our salvation who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free of the law of sin and death. Back to our first thing. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, in order that you might know intuitively that ye have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Can you say to John, can we say to John, we do know, we do know that we have eternal life. That's why the book was written. The second thing he says we know is this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. From that first moment that I prayed, laying in that bed that night and opened my life to Jesus, I had, well, actually it was the next morning that I realized it, but from that first day, I shouldn't say from the first moment, I had this assurance that he was with me. There was this awareness that I was no longer alone. Everywhere I would go, I was keenly aware of the fact that he was with me. This should be true for you as well. The presence of Christ in your life, we should know, we have this confidence that he hears us. Everywhere I'd go, he went with me. Everything I ended up doing, he did with me. And certainly everything I would say, he heard me, good or bad. Good or bad. Good speech or bad speech, prayers or curses, he hears us. We sense his displeasure when we speak in a way that displeases him. And we know intuitively, that's that same uh, Greek word, oida, actually, uh, that says, I know internally, I know intuitively that when I speak words, 
He hears me. Now, the third thing he says that we know is that we know, and if, and that word should be translated since, and since we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. How do we know that God hears us? The answer is he answers our prayers. You should have by now a litany of prayers that you have prayed that God has answered. I had years ago, somebody advised me that I should keep a prayer log of questions, of requests that I make of God and date it and put down the times that he answered it. I've never been disciplined enough to do that, but I know if I had, I'd have quite a book by now after all these many years of times that I've prayed, times that I've prayed and there's been no answer, times that I've prayed and that there's been an answer of no, and times that I've prayed that God has said yes. And it would be an interesting book if I'd have done what I was told to do 50 years ago is keep a prayer log of prayers that God has answered. The point is we know that God hears our prayers we know that God hears us. We know that God hears and answers our prayers. We prayed for forgiveness and salvation, and he answered that prayer. We prayed for strength to overcome sin, and we found victory over some of our sins. Unfortunately, not all of our sins, but we found victory over some of our sins. We've prayed for people we love, and in some of those cases, their lives have changed, and we've been blessed to see them come to Christ. We pray that is no longer an empty when we pray it's no longer an empty ceiling above it it's no longer like the old days when we used to pray and it seemed like no one was listening because we know this is what john says we know that he hears our prayers and we know that since he hears us some of the times he's going to say yes now john says the fourth thing we know which we don't really want to know we know intuitively that if we belong to him we cannot remain in sin. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. I'm going to take that in two parts. John says that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now that's one of those uh, verbs in the Greek that's a present active indicative and should be translated to be more accurate to what John writes. And we know that whosoever is born of God does not keep on sinning. Yes, we fall into sin. Yes, we sin from time to time, but we don't stay there. Whereas others are comfortable there, we are not. While we're still in the flesh, we do fail from time to time. But the difference is now that we're saved, when we fail, we feel badly about it. It's no longer a habit with us because it causes us great pain to sin. We cannot persist because we're not comfortable. We cannot continue in sin because the longer we're in sin, the worse we feel about it. There was a time when we could sin. Well, there, I can't say we here, but I can certainly say for me, there was a time I could sin and felt good about it. We'd laugh about it the next day. I'd feel good when I got away with something that was clearly wrong. I've mentioned often that I, I've been such a thief all my life uh, up until I met Christ that I used to feel good when I could get out of the store, usually a hardware store, with something that didn't belong to me. My only concern in those early days is that I would get caught. Or when I was younger, that mom and dad would find out. Or when I got older, that the store owner would catch me. 
if I got away with mom and dad, if I got away with it with the store owner, I felt pretty good about it. As I got older and moved on in my sin and got bolder and bolder, I really didn't even care if mom and dad found out. I just didn't want the store owner to find out, so I ended up talking to a police officer somewhere. It didn't bother me, and then I became a Christian. And then when I sinned, there's no getting away with it. You can't, you, you might convince your parents that you're doing all right. I might convince the store owner that I was just looking at those tools, but you couldn't convince Christ of anything. He knew exactly what I was doing. I've told you my two before story many times when the Holy Spirit said to me, there's two before's in the back of your truck. Are they yours? Uh, yeah, they're left over. Left over? Who bought them? You know, you can't get away with Christ. He's not going to let us off the hook. We cannot continue in sin. If we can sin and we're comfortable in sin, we are not saved. The Holy Spirit is not operational in our lives. Are we deadened our hearts so completely to Him that we're just ignoring? When we sin now, we feel badly. It was at first surprising to me because I remember commenting to my friends, this used to be fun. This isn't fun. And after I'd been a Christian about a year, I remember sitting down with Linda and saying, there's nothing we can do anymore that's fun. <laughs> there's no fun left, you know, because everything I did for fun was sinful. And it's really a remarkable experience. Now, some of you were saved at a very young age and you're thinking, what is he talking about? But if you, if you waited no longer, like I shouldn't have done, if I'd have done what you did, I wouldn't be able to talk about this. But fortunately, unfortunately, however you look at it, I was 25 when I was saved. Now, at the very end of that phrase, is it still there? Yes. And God keepeth, uh, uh, begotten, the one, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. That's our responsibility. And that wicked one toucheth him not. That's the second half of it that I wanted to break down for you. That word there, hoptomy, it there says properly to attach oneself to, to lay hold of or to grasp rather than a mere superficial touch. Now, the point that I'm trying to make here is the prince of sin, what he's saying here is we're born again. We're not comfortable in sin. The Holy Spirit won't let us be comfortable in sin. And because of that, it's really a disciplining of the Holy Spirit, but we get to a point where we recognize I'm not going to do that because by experience I've discovered that when I do that, it makes me feel bad. Whereas when I was lost and I did that, I felt good. Now that I'm saved and I do that same sin, no matter what that sin is, I feel badly about it. Now eventually, we get to a point where we learn that we're being conditioned by the Holy Spirit that I don't want to do this because I'm just going to I'm just going to get to a point where I have to feel badly about it. Then I have to confess it to Christ and then I have to ask forgiveness. And Linda was like miles ahead of me in that because she was saved as a young person and she would I'd be getting ready to say something or do something, and she would say to me, newly married, you know, we fought over everything. Uh, we, it's amazing if any marriage survives, but she would often say to me, now don't say something you're going to have to apologize for later. Okay. 
I have to say that really irritated me in the early days, but it became a way of life. Why do this if I'm going to feel terrible about it and then end up having to apologize for it and then seek God's forgiveness for it and then take weeks to get over it, not to mention the months it would take before she spoke to me again, you know, getting past the, the whole why even do it in the first place. This is the point. This is why we keep ourselves from sin because we don't want to offend God. But what's added on is God has put a block there. You see that? And that wicked one toucheth him not. And that word doesn't mean that, that, that Satan or his minions can't touch you. The word toucheth is, is kind of a, a weak translation of that word. It means they can't lay hold on you. They can't touch you. They can't grab you. It means to grasp or attach oneself to. They cannot do that. You can be tempted by Satan's minions, yes. You can be pestered by Satan's minions, demons or whatever you want to call them, yes. You can be tempted to sin, but they can't lay their hands on you. They have to leave you alone. God has seen it that way. And then Paul writes to the Romans, being then made free from sin. You remember when we were lost, we voluntarily started sinning. But after we sinned for a while, that's hard to say, after we've sinned for a while, we found out we couldn't stop sinning. We became slaves of sin. Being then made free from sin in Christ, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, we've become the servants, and that word is doulos, it's slaves of righteousness. We were the servants of sin once, but now we're the servants of righteousness, you see. God has turned the tables on us. Number five or fifth, John writes, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. Now the word of there in the Greek is the letter E and the letter K, ek, out of. I love that word because there's a promise that I'm, I'm planning to go into next week if the Lord continues to lead me. That word ek is important in the Greek because it means, and I'll read it to you, a primary preposition denoting origin, the point whence motion or action proceeds from, out, out of place, out of time, or cause, literally, figuratively, direct, or remote. I know that's too much information, but it's important. So it's a source. It's also a location. And know that we are of God, source, out of God. Our source, our life source is in God. Our salvation is in God. So it's not something we do. It's not some baptism we have. It's not some church that we go to. Our source is in God. This is the point. We have a new source and our eyes have been opened. Because Jesus said, geographically, you have kept the word of my faith. I will keep you out of ek great tribulation so the word is used two ways it's a location and it's a source but in both cases it's really a location our life is of God that's the location he's going to keep us out of ek, great tribulation which I hope to talk about next week so in this context it's saying we have a new source and our eyes have been opened it's kind of like Adam and Eve in reverse if you will Adam and Eve knew only good and they re resisted God's leadership and ate of the forbidden fruit, and then they knew good and evil. But the problem is, after generations of humans have sinned and sinned and sinned, 
we get to where we don't even recognize good anymore. We've, lost, we've seen so much evil, we don't identify it anymore. And after many generations, we've lost the ability to see the evil in our lives. And then, if you're an old guy like me when you get saved, all of a sudden you get saved and the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to evil. And for the first time in your life, you're actually seeing all the wrong that you've done. I remember the experience so well. It was incredible. For the first time in my life, I saw how sinful I really was. It was frightening. My eyes were open. Now I saw that everything that I had been doing before was bad. I couldn't run from it fast enough. What I'm describing here is when you're going through your darkened life and all of a sudden the light shines in your life and you see how wrong you are or how mistaken you are or how sinful you are and all of a sudden you want to turn from it and run, that is the, uh, the perfect definition of repentance. You've seen, you've changed your mind about it and you, to the best of your knowledge you've turned. We couldn't get away fast enough. But we couldn't get away so we cried for help. God, I can't stop this. I can't quit this habit. I can't break this addiction. I can't control my mouth. I can't stop stealing. But the promise is that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So now that Christ has intervened in our lives, we can see. We can see. And we know that we are of God, our sources of God. And we know that the whole world lies in wickedness. And we can see it now, whereas we couldn't see it before. This is why it's so difficult to talk to lost people. They don't see it. They think what they're doing is fine. The whole world lies in the power of Satan, but they can't see it. And the more we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, the worse the world begins to look to us. Because once again, our eyes have been opened to see good and evil. And we can really see the evil now for the first time. We can see that the whole world is traveling down a path to eternal destruction. And we know that everything they pursue, everything they do, everything they say is ek out of the lie, out of the evil one. It's all a deception. This is the point. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in, in wickedness. Salvation has split us off from the herd and we're in a different tribe, if you will. Six, he says, and we know. That's that word oida. He uses both of them here. You remember uh, the, the Gnostics? We use the word Gnostic. Uh, heresy. Uh, the word is from the Greek word gnosis. Uh, we get our word knowledge from it. Uh, so we're going to have two words here, intuitive knowledge and the knowledge that works itself into us by experience. And we know intuitively that the Son of God has come. This is almost a summary of this chapter. And we know intuitively that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know, that's ginosko, that's come to an experiential knowledge. We know it intuitively and have come to an experiential understanding that He is true. See? And we are in Him that is true, even His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So the sixth point He makes here, I'm boiling all of this down to one, we know that He is true. 
We know that he's come. We know that he's given us an understanding. We know that he is the truth. We know this is the true God. And we know that eternal life is in him. This is the sixth point. We know that he is truth. The seventh and final point. And we know we are in him that is true. Even his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now you know it's not so much that God gave us eternal life. I mean we use that phrase. He gave us eternal life. But that's not practically how it happens. It isn't that he gives me a spiritual gift or that he gives me salvation or that he gives us individual blessings. What he gives us is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that we are now in Christ and Christ is in us. And the gifts of Christ are now ours. The life of Christ is ours. The eternity of Christ is now ours. We are in Christ and Christ lives forever. And because Christ lives forever, we'll live forever. So basically, in Christ, we are already experiencing eternity future. And we know we are in him that is true, even his son, Jesus Christ. And then the craziest last verse of 1 John chapter 5 is this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you think, well, that's odd. After all of that, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you think, is he serious? What's he talking about? Uh, just imagine, after all that we've been through, John has to tell you and me to avoid idolatry. Is he talking about, is he talking about me carving some piece of soap into an odd shape and worshiping it as God? Must not be. There is a truth to it, though, isn't there? How easy it is to be sucked in, sucked back into the world's deceptions. So much so that members of the church are hardly different from the members of the world. So much so that people sometimes can't tell the difference between us and them. Harkens back, if you will, to Exodus. God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord your God which have brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And you think to yourself, why, why would he say it that way? Why, why would he say that? Because he brought them out of Egypt with a high hand. Because he brought them across the Red Sea by parting the sea. Because he destroyed the Egyptians behind them. They experienced all of this. And yet... 10 days, 20 days after uh, Moses is up on the mountain, they're back building themselves an Egyptian idol out of gold. How quickly we forget what God has done in our life, the miracles that he's brought in our lives to get us where we are and how easy it is for us with our fallen flesh to fall back into something that puts a barrier between us and God, how easily we are distracted. Just as their miraculous deliverance from Egypt seemed to only last a few weeks in their minds, God has to tell the Jews, no other gods before me. There should be nothing between us and God. And you think, well, that's those Jews. They, 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 they were, there was something wrong with those Jews. 
I mean, you really do think that. I mean, you can't get through the Old Testament without thinking these 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 folks are messed up, you know. But then you get all the way up there to uh, you get all the way up there to First Corinthians, and he has to warn the Corinthians. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. And I think, wait a minute, that's not Old Testament Jews. That's New Testament Christians. Why is Paul saying that? Well, if you knew anything about Corinth, you would understand they were the worst bunch of pagan Christians ever in the world. But the point is that idolatry is a problem that we all could fall into if we're not careful. There are things in the world that we can love and can somehow wheedle their way in between us and our relationship with Christ, so much so that these things become something of a barrier between us and God. And God could rightly ask us the question, do you love this more than me? As he asked Peter. Can you answer that question? When you look at your sailboat, Bob, do you love this more than me? When you look at your job, when you look at your business, when you look at your family, when you look at your kid's hockey game, when you look at the fishing that you're going to, do you love this more than me? It's something that can wiggle away, wiggle its little way in between us and God himself. I think of idolatry as a problem for others, but it's not. It's something we all have to be careful of. Knowing these seven things, John says, keep yourself from getting sucked back into the idols of the world. To the Colossians, he said, mortify therefore your members. Now mortify means put to death. Those, those parts of you that find themselves attracted to things that become an obstacle to your relationship to Christ. That's a long sentence, isn't it? Those things that become an obstacle between you and God, let them die. Now they already died when you were saved. In Christ, you died, and when you died, they died, but you have to reckon it so. You have to allow it to be that way. You have to realize that you're no longer alive to these things. This stuff doesn't matter to me anymore. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. And he goes through his normal evil list, sexual impurity, uh, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness which is idolatry. And then that ties this little niche in there. It says, well, you know, Lord, if I could just make a little more money, I'd, I'd be able to serve you. Lord, if, if, if I could just get my retirement in place, then I'll be free to go on missions. Lord, if I could just get that new car, I'll be in a position or that new truck where I'd be in a position to help my neighbor. But right now I'm too busy making money. I'm too busy feeding my family. I'm too busy doing this or I'm too busy doing that. That covetousness, that itch, for a little bit more, not being satisfied what we have, becomes a God to us. And it is, Paul said, idolatry. Well, to the Galatians, he said, now the works of the flesh are manifest. So if we're not operating in the Spirit, if we're not walking in the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our life, then we're walking in the Spirit of our own flesh. We're following our flesh. Now, you know our flesh is still lost. That's the reason we have to die. So when we walk in the power of our lost flesh, these are the results. And it sounds horrible because it is. Adultery, sexual impurity, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry. There we go again. See, you can't get away from the word in the New Testament. Witchcraft, 
uh, drug use, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. It's a great list to study. Take that list, look up every word in a good concordance, and see what each one means, and you'd be surprised, because you read that list and you think, well, that's not talking about Christians. But it is. It's Christians who are walking in the flesh. And one of the sins of Christians who are walking in the flesh is they let all kinds of stuff of the world get between them and their relationship to God. Now, I'm not saying they're lost. I'm just saying their relationship with God finds a barrier in something they're doing. There's something they're doing that's keeping them, should I say us, from being all that we could be in Christ. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have told you also in time past, that they which do, and that word again is that present continuous, they that persist in doing such things. It isn't that we haven't all been involved in some of these. Hopefully we haven't all been involved in all of these. But we've all been involved in some of these. Uh, we don't practice it. Those which continually do or those which practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we must be aware that something, some secret sin, some object of our affection, some habit or behavior, something we do consistently, we have to be careful that it does not wiggle its way between us and our love and our devotion for our God the Lord Jesus Christ. So John closes with these phrases. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for this book. Lord, I started out thinking it would be an easy book, and it got hard quickly. And I thank you, Lord, for the difficulty, because I know that I've grown as a result of this study. And I thank you for that, Father. I pray that you would, in fact, quicken our hearts and our minds to see the evil that's all around it, as John says. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to be aware of how easily the world sneaks in and becomes a barrier between us and you. Help us, Father, to avoid idolatry, even us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.